This is They Create Worlds, episode 69, Sega vs. Nintendo, round 2. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey and I'm joined by my co-host, Alec. Hello. We have covered part one of Nintendo and Sega's epic rivalry. We had them in Japan. They decided to become console makers from different route where we had this strange conglomeration of Shere Khan versus Al Capone. (laughs) And you'll have to pay attention to the previous episode to get that reference. That's right. As we found out, Nintendo won in Japan, so Sega had to go to a new land, the United States and Europe, in order to figure out how they could rule them all. That's right, but obviously they were not the only ones going there. It's not like Nintendo was ignoring the fact that there were these great other areas as well, and of course, as probably everyone listening to this podcast, or almost everyone listening to this podcast knows, Nintendo is the company that in fact gets there first. Nintendo was interested in coming to the United States very early on in its history with the Famicom. And I mean, even before the Famicom launched in Japan, they were already looking at how they could get into the United States. Of course, they did have an American subsidiary already because they were an arcade game manufacturer in the U.S. They had Nintendo of America. People may recall from other episodes that it was Hiroshi Yamauchi's son-in-law, Mr. Minoru Arakawa, who was in charge of that subsidiary with a lot of support coming from his close friend and confidant, Howard Lincoln, who by this time has become, I believe, he's either just become or will shortly become the uh, senior vice president and general counsel of the company. We talked about their relationship particularly in our Nintendo lawsuits episode a few weeks back. So they've got some infrastructure there already, but they are not positioned in such a way that they can really do a consumer product. Nintendo really wants to tap into some existing expertise when it comes to launching the system in America, and so they turn to the company that has more expertise than anybody, which is Atari. Did never stop talking about Atari in any of these episodes. <laughs> Well, they do cast a long shadow, but they will only be a minor player in the story we are telling today. Early 1983, Nintendo opens negotiations with Atari to bring the Famicom to the United States. At this point, as we've discussed in our very detailed Atari episodes... Atari really does need a new console. They had launched the year before the 5200, which was supposed to be their next-generation console to ultimately replace the Atari 2600. Due to conflicts between the home computer and consumer electronics divisions of Atari, the 5200 ended up using three-year-old technology that was not that impressive when compared to the ColecoVision just coming out. And it also had a very unfortunate, non-self-centering analog joystick, which made playing certain hit games, like, say, Pac-Man, virtually impossible. This system was clearly not the answer. Atari needed something else. I think Atari was aware they needed something else. 
And they actually had two candidates for that replacement. One is the uh, Famicom, which we're talking about now. The other was what ultimately became the Atari 7800, which, of course, we talked about in the context of Atari. Atari could have done something very sneaky here if they'd wanted to, because Nintendo wasn't aware of the 7800, so they could have signed a deal with Nintendo and kind of sat on the Famicom and pushed the 7800 more. That's what some of the sources like uh, Kent's book have said. I assume that any final contract would have included certain... I mean, any contract worth its salt is going to have certain performance clauses in it where if you don't sell X amount or whatever, we get our system back. It's a bit simplistic to just say that they could have sat on it and prioritized their own system, but still, they had a unique opportunity to see what the potential competition could be and, you know, make a decision between which one they wanted. And there was a lot of uh, disagreement uh, amongst the engineering staff over which one they should go with. Right in the middle of these negotiations, there was a bit of a kerfluffle because Coleco released the Atom computer, which we've talked about. The Atom computer had a version of, I think, Donkey Kong Jr., not Donkey Kong, but one of the Donkey Kongs, at least, running on it. Coleco had the console rights to the Donkey Kong stuff. Atari had the home computer rights, not Coleco. Atari was furious, and they called off all negotiations until such time as Nintendo fixed this. The story of how they fixed this is very interesting, and... uh has only been told from the Nintendo perspective. Uh, I've interviewed Arnold Greenberg, but I haven't talked to him, uh, the CEO of Coleco, but I haven't talked to him about this specifically, so we don't have the Coleco side of it. But basically at CES, Yamauchi called a meeting with Greenberg, Coleco CEO, and proceeded to become, quote-unquote, unhinged. He gave this massive performance in Japanese, and it was a performance. He wasn't really unhinged. Yamauchi's not the type. He gave this massive show of yelling and screaming and gesticulating in Japanese in an attempt to cow Greenberg into uh, backing off. And whether it was that or something else, they did get that situation sorted out. (laughs) But by then, Ray Kassar is being fired, the company's in turmoil, and Nintendo is asking for a lot in terms of their royalties and their rights and all of that. Everybody walks away. Nobody releases the system in 1983, and that's probably a good thing, because with the climate at the time, even a great system like the NES, what became the NES, now just the Famicom, I don't think it would have done well in that market, especially since at launch, all it had were basic arcade titles like Donkey Kong, Donkey Kong Jr., Popeye, that were available on other consoles. Now, was the NES version better? Yes. But still... When your entire market is falling apart and there's oversaturation of product, you're going to need something a little more special than that if you want to break through that challenge and actually be successful on the marketplace, I think it would be fair to say. Mm -hmm. So Nintendo sits on that. In the meantime, they do attempt to release Game & Watch in the United States. They do that through Nintendo of America. They don't try to go through a third-party company for that. This is the first time that Nintendo has really tried to be a consumer company in the United States. Obviously, they've been a consumer company in Japan for decades at this point, but not so much in the United States. The problem is is that everybody they have on staff is really arcade-oriented. 
Minoru Arakawa has no experience with consumer products. Howard Lincoln doesn't. The main people in sales and marketing are Ron, Judy, and Al Stone, who have been with the company uh, since the Donkey Kong days, but they're coin-op-centric. They need to bring in some staff. One of the first people they bring in in 1983 to kind of get around this is a guy named Bruce Lowry, a name that we've mentioned, I think, before in other episodes and a name that's going to be important a couple of times here. He had been working for Pioneer. I think before that he worked for Technicolor. So he was in the, uh, the electronics business. He was not an engineer, but sales and marketing in the electronics business. Working with Pioneer, he was, had been involved in a consumer-oriented electronics company. He was a good guy to bring in and kind of try to head up some of this uh, sales and marketing stuff on the uh, consumer end. He was kind of the first consumer-specific hire that Nintendo did. The Game & Watch doesn't do great. The commercials for it, they do shoot commercials, but they're kind of amateurish, and the product is a kind of product that's a little more old hat by this point in the U.S. than it is in Japan. There is a video game crash, and even though Game & Watch is not a console video game system, I'm sure there's still a bit of stigma attached, so it doesn't really do very well. It's the beginning of building up a competency to do home product at Nintendo of America, which is important because by the time Yamauchi decides that it's time to try again in that consumer marketplace in 1985, they're ready to do it. So at the 1985 CES, before E3, we've talked about this before, the uh, Consumer Electronics Show, of which there were two, a winter in Las Vegas and a summer in Chicago. At CES in 1985, they put together a booth and they put together a mock-up of the Nintendo Advanced Video System. That's right. This very fancy system is going to have all the bells and whistles you could ever want. It's going to have wireless controllers. It's going to have an optional keyboard, an optional piano, electric little synthesizer, all of these great peripherals you can wire into it. It looks sleek, like a piece of stereo equipment or something. It looks big and bold and excellent. Isn't it great that we can have video games again? To which all of the buyers at the show said, No, thank you. But it's big in Japan. (laughs) We just beat up Sega with this thing. Why aren't you buying it? There's a misconception today. When we talked about the Summoner Crash episode, there's a misconception today that some people that lived through this period have And I've talked about this before. That misconception is, I played Atari games, then I played Commodore 64 games, then I played Nintendo Entertainment System games. There were always video games when I wanted to play them. Therefore, there was always a video game market. Therefore, all of this talk of a crash, while yeah, things went down, the industry never completely went away, because I was always playing video games. And we like our video games. From a consumer perspective, That's not wrong. I mean, that's not strictly inaccurate from a consumer perspective. If you were someone that enjoyed games in the United States, there was always an avenue for you to explore that. But that does not take into account the fact that the retail distribution channel was done with video games. Done, done, done. We are not going to stock these because we are still trying to clear out all that crap you gave us two years ago. You being the industry as a whole, not Nintendo, obviously. A lot of really good people 
lost their jobs because they thought we should buy more video games. And I have my job today because my predecessor was fired for buying too many video games. And you want me to buy what now? Hmm. No. (laughs) From a retail distribution perspective, the industry really was dead. We can't overstate that. And really, listen to our great video game crash part two slash three. It pretty much hammers this entire point home very well. Just how much retail hated, just like Kafka, hated it. That's right. It wasn't all bad. There were certain visionary retailers out there that were still very interested. And the most important of those was Toys R Us. Toys R Us may she forever rest in peace, was one of the really powerful, important toy movers and shakers in this time period, maybe the most important one. They had stolen the thunder from the department stores in that regard. Toys R Us, the ownership, Charles Lazarus and his team, never really gave up on video games. Even in the dark days of 83 and 84, they were fairly convinced that there was still a demand for video games and that a good video game could still sell. And in this time period, they even had some success with video games because they were a little more careful than some of these other outlets in the way they managed their inventory. There was an opportunity to perhaps get back in that business, but it was going to be an incredible uphill struggle for anyone that wanted to do it. Anyone in this case being Nintendo. So, of course, that's what leads to the famous test market. And this story has been told, so we really don't need to go into much depth here, because much of what's been told about that story is accurate and is already well known. It's an interesting story, but it's not that germane to the Nintendo-Sega conflict, since this is Nintendo on its own. But basically, they decide to test what's now being called the Nintendo Entertainment System in New York City. And we did go over a lot of this in our Nintendo episode back in the day. Yes, playing with power. They are able to generate enough enthusiasm amongst specific retailers like Toys R Us, Macy's, FAO Schwartz, that they sell through a fair amount of the 100,000 systems they took with them. They proved that there was still a market for video games. You just needed something new and impressive and better. And the Famicom really provides that to the market. Exactly. Along with our good friend Mario in his new game, Super Mario Brothers. Must play it all. So Nintendo has a successful launch test market in New York City in late 1985. Toys R Us at that point wants to go national. They were already pretty much on board with the entire idea of video games coming back. And the New York test market just proved it even more. So they were ready. They were like, let's do this. Nintendo could not produce enough product to do that quite yet. The whole idea had been, we'll do this, then we'll build up our inventory and we'll go national the next fall. So they had to stick with that. So they did another test market in Los Angeles. They expanded into about seven markets and then finally did a national rollout in fall 1986. This is the exact same time that Sega is coming onto the market for the first time in the United States. In 1986, Sega decides to slightly rejigger the Mark III. They had like FM sound synthesis and some cosmetic tweaks and whatnot, and release this in the United States. 
they too think that the market's going to come back. They have an American presence already, just like Nintendo did. In 1985, after being out of the North American market for two years, Sega Enterprises Limited, Japan, founds Sega Enterprises USA to re-enter the arcade market in the United States. When the old parent company, Sega Enterprises Incorporated, had sold their North American factory, Sega Electronics, to Bally in 1983, they had pledged to not re-enter the market for two years, that anything they put out in the North American market would go out through Bally Midway. Bally had bought the company specifically because they wanted to be able to distribute Sega's Laserdisc game, Astron Belt, as we discussed, I believe, in our Laser Craze episode. They were prohibited for a couple of years from re-entering the North American market. Then, after that had subsided, after that was over in 1985, they founded their new Sega Enterprises USA. Gene Lipkin, a longtime point-off industry executive whom we've talked about before, was brought in to head that up. So they knew that the arcade market was on an upswing because by 1985, the arcade had finished, the coin-op industry had finished bottoming out and was on the rise again. Sega had some very successful games in coin-op during this time period, particularly Hang On and Outrun in 85 and 86. So they knew the market was coming back. They knew that if the arcade market, the coin-op market was coming back, that certainly the home market was going to follow. And they had a console, so they were very eager to get involved as well. They weren't as bold as Nintendo, who came in early, which was much to their benefit for building brand recognition and building support amongst retailers. But they did decide to come in in 1986. They decided that the best person to introduce their system into North America was the same person that had been largely responsible for introducing the Nintendo Entertainment System in North America. And that was our good friend Bruce Lowry, who was the uh, vice president of sales at this point for Nintendo of America. So come on over here and work for us. Yeah, sort of. It's not that simple. We talked about this before, but Nintendo had a real feel of family to it. People do not leave Nintendo. There are still two people at Nintendo today, Don James and Lance Barr. Don James was there practically from the beginning of Nintendo of America. He joined in like 81 or 82 or somewhere in there. Lance Barr joined uh, almost as far back as that. They're still there today, right now. That's kind of insane. Loyalty at Nintendo is very high. Arakawa, we talked about, was a very soft-spoken, very bright but very soft-spoken, shy, collegial kind of individual. Somebody who wanted employees to feel valued, who wanted employees to feel like they were part of a family, who wanted employees to feel like they were doing truly great work at Nintendo and were really appreciated at Nintendo. So Nintendo employees do not leave. And in fact, spoiler alert, eventually Bruce Lowry ends up going back into the Nintendo family. (laughs) Yeah, I think we mentioned that before. It just goes away, comes back, but sort of comes back under conditions. It's not that simple a thing. And, and Lowry was not looking to leave. I want to be clear on that. Uh, I've interviewed uh, him. So is Ken Horowitz, who's doing great work on Sega's history. He has a new book on Sega Arcade history coming out later this year. Uh, his book on Sega of America certainly going to be one of the big sources that we're using for this part of the podcast. 
playing at the next level, I would definitely encourage people to check that out as well. We've both interviewed him, and in both cases, he said, I was not looking to leave Nintendo. He kind of wanted to get back to California. He didn't like all the rain in Seattle. But other than a slight preference for living in California instead of living in Seattle, he was 100% happy at Nintendo. But Dave Rosen, who is now, I, I forgot to mention the last episode, after the CSK buyout, Dave Rosen comes back into the fold. You know, he kind of retired from the American company. But after the buyout, he comes back into the fold and he's looking over the American operations. He's not running day to day. He's down in Los Angeles, Beverly Hills, while the new Sega Enterprises Arcade division is in San Jose up in Silicon Valley. So he's not running anything approaching the day-to-day. His job is to kind of keep tabs on what's going on in America, and he's going to be the chairman of the new North American subsidiary for console stuff. So David Rosen is really intent on getting him, really woos him hard. Bruce Lowry makes what he considers to be a pretty, not outlandish salary request, but definitely a salary request on the high end. Rosen doesn't even negotiate with him. He's just like, sure. We can do that. Okay. Which is a clue of how serious they are. And then he's promised, you know, you are going to get to build an organization from the ground up. There is no Sega console division because it's going to be separate from the arcade division. You know, Nintendo of America is both arcade stuff and console stuff. Minoru Arakawa, the president, is in charge of both of those. Now, they end up doing a separate president of CoinOp, Frank Ballou. The organizations are run separately further down the org chart, but it's all one company at the end of the day. What Sega is going to do is found a company that is completely separate from its arcade division in order to do this console thing. Rosen said, you know, basically, Bruce Lowry, you are going to have the opportunity to build a complete organization from the ground up. You can base it wherever you want. You can hire whomever you want. You can do whatever you want to make this product a success for us. So that's pretty appealing, even if you're not planning on leaving, to be told, you know, this is your show. That's true. We will make you an offer you can't refuse. (laughs) So in the end, Bruce Lowry accepts. He becomes the new president, I think president, not CEO, but the new president of what he decides to call Sega of America. There had been a Sega of America in the 1970s, as we discussed, but that organization went away with the collapse of Sega Incorporated during the crash. It just happened that it's the same name. I mean, there are only so many ways you name an American subsidiary of a Japanese company. He called it Sega of America because he came from a place called Nintendo of America. It does happen that there was a previous Sega of America as well. He founded the company in the offices of the arcade subsidiary. For the first little bit, first couple of months or whatever, they worked out of the arcade subsidiary's building because it's a new organization. They don't have a building yet. Mm -hmm. They move out of there pretty quickly. I think I mentioned this in one of our other episodes where we talked about part of this period before. But the interesting thing is that when Bruce Lowry left Nintendo of America, Arakawa was not upset with him. Nobody was mad at him. There was not a fierce rivalry between Nintendo and Sega at this time. It's, it wasn't like going to work for the enemy or anything. What Arakawa said to Lowry, I got this from personally interviewing Bruce Lowry, was, don't 
do anything that would disappoint me. Now, he didn't mean that in the sense of let's collaborate to make sure Nintendo's always on top. <laughs> you know, that would be terrible. Arakawa would never ask someone to do that. But the point is, Nintendo is a family. Nintendo, at least in Arakawa's eyes, is an honorable business. Don't do anything at Sega that reflects a different philosophy than the philosophy that we had here at Nintendo of being a, a family company, of being a loyal company, of being an upright company. Don't do anything as an employee that you wouldn't do here at Nintendo as an employee. And don't show dishonor by doing something dishonorable at Sega and then sort of show that, oh, behind the scenes, Nintendo employees are really ruthless like this. It's not even a matter of showing Nintendo employees in a poor light. I mean, Arakawa, and this comes from multiple people that have worked there. I mean, Arakawa, unfortunately, because he's so shy, has done very little interviewing. Very, very little. So there's not a lot of good stuff from Arakawa's perspective. But from every employee that you would ever talk to that worked at Nintendo, I mean, he really felt like Nintendo was a family. Loyalty to your people above all else. We can talk about their other things that they did. We've done it in past episodes and we'll do it in this episode. Their controlling nature, their strong arming nature, their even sometimes bullying nature with others outside the organization. But within the organization, he really felt it was a family. So Bruce Lowry leaving Nintendo to go off to Sega is like a son going off to college or a son going off to start his first job. It's like your family, you've been a part of us. We've raised you. He's only been there a couple of years out of his entire professional career. But still, mm -hmm. we raised you. Now you're going out in the world. Make us proud is basically what we're saying. I think that plays into the way the first phase of this Sega v. Nintendo battle plays out. And that's why I've taken so much time to talk about this at this juncture. Because there isn't really much of a console war between Nintendo and Sega in the 8-bit era. And I don't mean that just because, spoiler alert, Nintendo wipes the floor with Sega in terms of sales. You don't see the same competitiveness, the same butting heads against each other, battling for every inch of market share. You don't get that till the 90s. Right. And I think part of that may be because of this feeling. Lowry is more on the Nintendo philosophy of marketing. Focus on the quality of your product. Focus on the great content you have coming out. Don't get down in the gutter and sling mud at each other, which is a very Japanese point of view because competitive advertising in Japan is almost non-existent, or at least was back then. I couldn't speak for today. I think that plays a role in the fact that there's not much of a big competition here. So Lowry goes off. He found Sega of America. He hires some people in, and they put out the Master System. They debut it at the CES in June 1986 which is about the same time that Nintendo is preparing to roll out its, its national rollout of uh, the Nintendo Entertainment System. It's technologically superior. It's a little bit better of a system, but it's got issues, other issues. First, Sega does not have the same brand recognition that Nintendo does because Nintendo was able to get a head start on brand recognition by having that great test market and being able to trumpet that they had a successful test market, and they've had advertising put together longer. 
uh, you know, all their now you're playing with power stuff, which is pretty classic stuff. So they've got more of a name recognition. They've already gotten the trust of several big retailers, most notably Toys R Us. So they've really built up momentum in a way that is kind of hard to fight against. They've already been in with sales reps. This is another big thing and one that maybe doesn't get talked about as much as it should. You know, distribution, you know, we talked about Shoshin Kai in the previous episode and uh, we're talking about distribution again here. Distribution isn't the sexy kind of thing that sells books, but it's an important part about of whether uh, a system succeeds or fails in the marketplace. Logistics. It's always logistics. If you don't have good, solid logistics, whatever you're doing, be it a military force selling something or just I need power and water to my home. If those logistics aren't good, the entire system collapses. Right. Nintendo and Sega, neither one at this point has a direct sales force. They are both relying on manufacturers reps to sell their product. And we've talked about sales reps before. Basically, a sales rep organization will be active in a bunch of different product categories, but they'll only push a single product in any given product category in order to stop there from being a conflict of interest. A Nintendo sales rep will sell the NES, but they'll also be selling you know, toothpaste for somebody else, but they won't sell the Sega system. So they're not fully focused on your product, but it gives you national reach without the huge amount of employee expense that you would need to maintain a direct sales force all over the country. So both Nintendo and Sega are relying on manufacturers' reps in order to get their system out there. But Nintendo, as we talked about in our Playing With Power episode, was able to get in with some of the biggest hitters in the previous video game industry. When they're in New York, they partner with uh, Sam Barofsky, who ran a rep organization that was one of Atari's most successful organizations during the golden age of video games when the VCS was selling so well. So he understood the market very well. He understood what went wrong very well. And he provided a lot of input to Nintendo that corroborated Nintendo's own research about how they needed to keep firmer control over inventory in order to not repeat the Atari situation where a glut of inventory led to a crash. Then when they go national, they get in with Worlds of Wonder. And we talked about Worlds of Wonder. They had Teddy Ruxpin and Laser Tag. They had two of the hottest toys in the country. They were staffed by a bunch of former Atari people because they were founded by former Atari people. So they had all of these salespeople in the organization that were familiar with video games that had those contacts already. And they had two of the hottest toys in the country. Since they partnered with Worlds of Wonder... Nintendo could say, or rather Worlds of Wonder could say on Nintendo's behalf, we have Laser Tag. We have Teddy Ruxpin. If you want to do business with us on Laser Tag and Teddy Ruxpin, you're also going to need to talk to us a little bit about this new thing we have called the Nintendo Entertainment System. Or else we're going to have to have some word with our truckers in logistics again. Yeah, I mean, there's no indication that they were doing that kind of thing. It gave Worlds of Wonder and through them Nintendo leverage to get into retail outlets, department stores, discount houses and whatnot that might still be leery after the crash. Toys R Us was all ready to go, rah, rah. But it was that Worlds of Wonder alliance that helped them get other retailers on board. And Sega just didn't have those connections. They couldn't do the same thing. Atari is still out there as well, and Atari's going to reintroduce systems. 
But Atari is now run by Jack Trammell, and nobody in retail really likes Jack Trammell anymore because he keeps screwing them over, <laughs> quite frankly. Yeah, he pretty much goes, I'm telling you this, we're making these promises, and I'm going to remig on those promises. Exactly. Business is war for Mr. Trammell, and he doesn't Everyone care how many casualties. <laughs> exactly. Nintendo's got the best reps, got the best distribution. They've got their advertising and name recognition in place already. For Sega, it would be almost impossible to overcome that without taking some very aggressive moves. The other problem is the games. Sega is an arcade company, first and foremost. That's its identity. Nintendo, as we talked about, is a toy company. Nintendo's primary identity is forged around the concept of creating fun. That's what a toy company does. Sega is an arcade company, so the entire rationale for Sega is to create something that will keep your adrenaline flowing for about a minute and a half to three minutes, after which it's time to insert another quarter. Sega had great expertise in making short, sweet, arcade experiences. Hang on. Outrun. Afterburner, Altered Beast, Golden Axe, on and on into history. They didn't necessarily have a great deal of understanding on how to make a fun, deeper console experience. They didn't have a Shigeru Miyamoto. Their Shigeru Miyamoto was Yu Suzuki, but Yu Suzuki was an arcade guy. He was really great at those fancy cabinets like uh, Hang On and Outrun and bold graphics and fast action. but. They didn't have a guy on the console end that had that kind of drive. They didn't have a Miyamoto. When Miyamoto and his team created Super Mario Brothers, it was meant to be a culmination of everything that Nintendo's designers had learned doing the Famicom and doing games on the Famicom. So it's just stuffed to the gills with interesting experiences that go on for a while, you know. It's not just three minutes in certain new quarter kind of gameplay. We have something a bit more in depth. It's something that we can get some sustained gameplay out of, and it allows it to do something a little bit different than the typical arcade, fast action, twitch, whatever. You have something where I can have that JRPG that has a long epic storyline. I can have something that's a little more strategically based where I'm trying to get from point A to point B and trying to understand what's going on. It allows things like Desert Commander, where you have two sides, you and a friend, and you're deploying your troops out and trying to figure out, oh, if I use my fighter against the bombers, takes out his bombers, but his bombers are going to take out my tanks, but my tanks are defended by anti-aircraft, which if they get the shot first before the bombers, then (laughs) I didn't win that game much. (laughs) The other thing about Miyamoto and his group, Tezuka and Nagano, the people that were putting this game together, they were masters of scaling difficulty and managing player evolution. The first level of Super Mario Bros. is a great example of that. That first mushroom that comes out of the uh, question mark block. They made it so that once you hit that block, it was almost impossible to avoid the mushroom because it bounces off the pipe that's further to the right, and then you're under the brick still in a small Mario. You can't break the brick, so you kind of can't avoid. They made it so that you kind of had to run into that mushroom, because they wanted you to know that the mushroom is a good thing. 
Then the second game, they were jerks and they put a poison mushroom in. But But at least they gave it a different color. (laughs) There's a jump where you go up a small stepladder of blocks and then there's a pit and then you have to jump to the other set of blocks over here. Before that jump, they do the exact same jump, except that there's not a bottomless pit in between. So if you don't make the jump, you just fall in and you can jump back out again. They're teaching you the technique in a safe space before they make you do it for real. This is pre-tutorial. There's not just a fun, no consequences space where you can mess around in, but they try to ramp up difficulty in a logical way that gets you acclimated to expectations. And this is a really great way of making video games where the game itself, the natural flow of the gameplay teaches you how to play the game without having to do a pop-up in order to explain what it is. There's a funny video that I'll probably end up throwing in the show notes where, what if Mario Brothers was made today with the way Nintendo likes to hold your hand? (laughs) Starts going to explain, okay, you have to push right in order to move right. Let's try that. Push right now. You move two steps. See, that was easy. (laughs) Now you need to jump. Push the jump button, which is this button over here. Push the jump button now. You push that, you jump. And then it shows the uh, guy who's doing this, and he's like, gives up. No, no, don't turn it off. Don't, no, no, it won't be good. (laughs) Exactly. An arcade game or an arcade game design sensibility is to wipe you out in the first few seconds. You learn, you get better as you play. But the only way you get better is by dying repeatedly and inserting more quarters. Nintendo had designers that understood how to make a home console experience. I mean, that changes at Sega. But in the beginning, Sega really didn't. They were really still thinking about arcade experiences. And this is another thing that Sato, I talked in the previous episode about the new oral history that's been done in Japanese with Hideki Sato, who was overseeing a lot of this console stuff. Uh, And in that oral history, he admits the same thing. It's like, We knew how to deliver an arcade experience. We didn't really understand yet how to deliver a home experience. And that changes. I mean, Fantasy Star, their RPG on the Master System, really is a classic. It's a well-designed RPG. It's a good game. It's something that is still talked about and raved about to this day. It takes them longer to get there. Nintendo was already kind of there before them. Nintendo's already got that success in place. And then, of course, it's just there's the third party software. There's no way of getting around the fact that Nintendo had a stranglehold on third parties, because if you wanted to put a game on their system, you signed a contract that said that that game would be exclusive to the Nintendo Entertainment System for two years. Because all of the companies involved in this business, at the beginning, literally all of them, And even by 1987, it's most of them, are all Japanese companies. They are all looking towards their Japanese market first. Doesn't matter if they have an opportunity to make a lot of money in the U.S. too. They have to look to their home market first. The Famicom has like 90 plus percent of the market in Japan. In Japan, you're not going to bother putting your game out on anything but the Famicom. But if you're putting your game out with Nintendo, Nintendo is going to extract some concessions out of you in terms of exclusivity. There was no way any of these Japanese companies were ever going to break ranks with Nintendo to put out product on the Sega Master System because it was not economically viable for them 
to break away from the company that was making so much money for them in Japan. And of course, ended up making so much money for them in the United States as well. So there was this strict control structure that we talked about in other episodes, so we don't need to talk about it here. And there were a lot of companies that chafed under that structure, that control, but it was still their best bet for making lots of money. And so nobody was going to break ranks and go to Sega. So Nintendo has the best sales reps. Nintendo has the better brand recognition. Nintendo has the best games and the most games because everyone's making for them. That doesn't leave a lot for Sega. Not really. I've never heard that Sega had a console before the Genesis. Wait, Sega Master System? What's that? I knew one person. I think I mentioned that in a previous episode. You did. I knew one person who had a Master System. He had an NES, too. He didn't just have a Master System. And we only played that Master System, like, once. I mean, we, when we were always there, we were over there, we were playing Bases Loaded, Mike Tyson's Punch-Out, and Skate or Die on the NES. We weren't playing <laughs> on the Master System. It doesn't leave them a lot. I mean, they tried, uh, certainly. Master System name, it's interesting story. Master System was actually named by the American staff, by... Bruce Lowry and his main marketing man, Bob Harris, who came to the company from J. Walter Thompson, where he had done much of the advertising for Activision. J. Walter Thompson had the Activision account and Bob Harris was on that account. So he was a marketing man with experience in the uh, video game industry already. They came up with the name. They just came up with it randomly. I mean, it was just something that sounded good and powerful, basically throwing darts at a board. I mean, not literally, but that's essentially what they did. But then they had to go justify the name to Japanese management. It was called the Mark III in Japan. So they go to a meeting with Nakayama and with Okawa, who we may recall as the chairman of the company, who was president of CSK Corporation. Okawa, I believe, not Nakayama, Okawa asks, why are you calling it the master system? You know, he's kind of unsure about the name. And on the spot, on the spot, Bob Harris is there thinking. And on the spot, this was not the reason they named it this at all, but he just says to Okawa, Because in order to be a master, like in martial arts, you have to conquer all of your opponents. And so the master system is going to be the master of the video game industry that conquers all of its opponents. Sold. That's right. You may recall that all the packaging, well, you may not because you never saw a master system. The packaging for the master system, games and whatnot, was white. It was white with kind of a blue square pattern. They went white because Nintendo, much of Nintendo's packaging was black. So that was just a direct, we're going to be the opposite of who they are. The blue square pattern was because it was similar to what the Macintosh was using in its marketing materials. And Bruce Lowry was very enamored with the the marketing that was being done by Apple for the Macintosh at that time. They got into some retail outlets, but they were overwhelmed by Nintendo. I mean... We kind of have to go back again to what Nintendo did and what their strategy was, which we haven't talked about in as much detail. After Bruce Lowry left, they brought in a guy named Bruce Donaldson, another Bruce, to be the head of sales. Ron Judy, who had been on the arcade side, was overseeing marketing. But then in late 1986, Ron Judy left to take on other responsibilities at Nintendo. And so they hired a new VP of marketing named Peter Maine, who started working in early 1987. Peter Maine was a Canadian. He had spent years with Colgate Palmolive selling toothpaste and whatnot marketing. 
Then he had gotten involved in their restaurant division and was helping manage some of their restaurant operations. And then he left that and took over uh, running a, some fast food burgers joint in Canada himself. He got to know Minoru Arakawa because in the 70s, before Arakawa had joined Nintendo, he was doing real estate stuff up in Canada, and he happened to live across the street from Peter Main. They were neighbors. Hmm. Nintendo, actually, in its very early days, got involved with the whole Chuck E. Cheese thing. We didn't talk about this, I don't think, in our Chuck E. Cheese episode. But Nintendo actually was one of the franchisees for Chuck E. Cheese for a brief period of time. So when they were buying into a Chuck E. Cheese franchise, Arakawa asked his buddy, Maine, to kind of advise them on this because Maine was in the fast food business, in the restaurant business. At that time, he was really trying to get Peter to join Nintendo because he was very impressed with Peter as a marketer. But he was not interested. He didn't want to move from Canada. He was happy doing what he was, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, in early 1987, when they need a marketing guy again, Arakawa is really trying to, hard to recruit him again, trying to get him interested in this exciting new business he can be a part of. And Maine's hesitant again at first, but finally he decides, okay, fine, I'll, I'll do this, and discovers when he researches that it does seem to be a pretty fascinating industry. So Maine and Donaldson, these two guys, just put together this complete and brilliant kind of sales and marketing blitz that plays a big part in the reason why Nintendo's successful. And it's based around scarcity. We talked about this a little bit before, this aspect of it. Nintendo always made sure that they had a little less product than they really needed to meet demand. They would create a sort of artificial scarcity. And then Peter Main and his team would treat every single release almost like a big movie premiere. This was their marketing approach. Their marketing approach was to focus entirely on gameplay. They weren't even building a Nintendo brand. I mean, yes, they used Now You're Playing With Power. They had kind of this catchphrase or this tagline that unified their commercials. But they really weren't trying to create a Nintendo brand. Nintendo as a name, as a company, as a video game system, as an entertainment system, didn't matter. The Legend of Zelda mattered. Mike Tyson's Punch-Out mattered. Dragon Warrior mattered. Right. It's all about the game. And what they would do is they would treat each release as almost like a, a big movie premiere. They'd do an advertising blitz. They'd market the heck out of it. And then they'd make sure that they didn't oversell to retailers so that it would be kind of hard to get. So this would create a frenzy around new releases, and this would get people excited about the games available on the Nintendo Entertainment System. This was the approach, and it was a very effective approach. Once they had that going, and once they had retailers on board, they hired another marketing guy named John Sakaley as their manager of merchandising. John Sakaley came out of Kenner Parker. He had been with Kenner when they did a major, major merchandising push related to Star Wars, the Star Wars action figures, the little three and three quarters figures that were ridiculously popular in the late 70s and early 80s. Kenner had come up with the idea of doing a kind of store within the store kind of thing where you have a complete big Star Wars 
display area that has all of the merchandise, but also has posters and all of this stuff kind of in a kiosk format. It's a you know store, literally a store within a store where you could get all of your Star Wars needs. Peter Maine poaches John Sicaley from General Mills, parent of Kenner Parker, and hires him into Nintendo to do the same thing at Nintendo. And they create the World of Nintendo displays. I don't know if you remember those at all. The best thing I remember is the plastic box in Toys R Us that had all the Nintendo stuff in it. Yeah, but that's not what this is. Toys R Us has always organized their store around brands. And so they've always had this kind of store within a store thing for all of their product. The Sears at our local shopping mall had a World of Nintendo. Okay, I don't think I actually recall seeing that one. It's a kiosk, and you can actually walk through the middle of it. I mean, it's not like it's not huge, but like you can walk down the middle and there's stuff on either side of you. It's a Nintendo branded kiosk with all of the Nintendo stuff right there. Often there's a demo Nintendo machine outside of it. It's just a Nintendo branded space with all your Nintendo stuff. And they would encourage stores to adopt the world of Nintendo model by giving them discounts on inventory essentially, for putting up World of Nintendo displays, which is what made stores really happy to play ball with this. So then they've established the store within a store and concentrated this Nintendo merchandise in an exciting way. Then they take their fanzine, their little Nintendo Fun Club newsletter that they give to people who register their Nintendo products free of charge, and they turn that into Nintendo Power. Get Gail Tilden to run that. Now this magazine, Nintendo Power, is going out to millions of homes. They don't need to build the brand on television. On television, they just focus on getting people excited about the games. Then they can use World of Nintendo in the store to build a unified Nintendo brand around these great games. And then they can use Nintendo Power to have a direct dialogue with their fan base and hype big new games coming out and all of this. They've just got this entire ecosystem, and they build it step by step, very carefully. Peter Main, Bruce Donaldson, and their people below them just build this sales and marketing juggernaut. It's really interesting. It's almost like a rabbit hole where you start a taste, and then it just becomes more and more elaborate as it goes on and on. I'm a video game consumer. I look around for a video game. I see, oh... There's The Legend of Zelda. That looks interesting. The advertisement's really cool. It has that nerd rapping at me. (laughs) Not cool. So let's go buy that. So I go to Sears and I see, ah, yes, I can get Zelda. Oh, Zelda is provided me by Nintendo. And they have this nice presentation of Zelda and I can try these other games. Oh, well, that's fun. Okay, I'll try this game and that game. Okay, I'll take these games home with me. I have a card that says if I register, I get free stuff. Okay, where's my stamp? Mom, give me a stamp. Great. Mail this off. Now I'm having a conversation with Nintendo that sends me this comic book with views of which games to try out, tips and tricks, and I get awesome little comics with that Nestor guy and other people. It's great. Fantastic. I love Nintendo. Nintendo is great. And then they work with Leisure Concepts, which is run by a guy named Al Khan, who had been a marketing guy at Coleco during the ColecoVision days. And they start working with him to do the merchandising. Oh, dear. They give him the sole merchandising rights. And he's the guy that floods the market with 
bed sheets and pajamas and clothing and cereal and all of this crazy stuff. That- and we have those bed sheets. I have my Legend of Zelda bed sheets over there. There you go. So now they've got the merchandising empire on top of that. Then to start expanding into getting adults more aware of Nintendo as a brand, they go to promotional tie-in campaigns. They go with Pepsi, for instance, and do a tie-in campaign with Pepsi. They, of course, get into McDonald's Happy Meals at some point. They start doing merchandising tie-ins, and this allows them to create more awareness around other demographics without actually specifically advertising to those demographics. So it's a very careful, step-by-step, well-oiled machine that Peter Main creates in order to make Nintendo synonymous with video games. You didn't play video games. You played Nintendo. Didn't matter if that was an Atari system in the basement. You, you played Nintendo. Yep, pretty much like how any video console of that era it became the Nintendo. Right. Not even the Nintendo Entertainment System, not even the NES, just Nintendo. Mm-hmm. So what's that new Nintendo that uh, Sega put out? <laughs> exactly. Sega's having trouble competing with this. They get into some retail spaces, but they're not able to do much. They could try to get into a price war with Nintendo, but Bruce Lowry specifically opts against that. He doesn't want to be involved in that kind of thing. They do decide to release what they called the base system which was basically stripped down. It didn't come with a bundled game, you know, just fewer components. You know, Nintendo, of course, streamlined their system over time, too. They started by having the big thing with the robot. The robot vanishes. After the first year, practically. Right. As we discussed in our Nintendo episode, it was basically a Trojan horse to get people to be like, hey, this isn't a video game. This is a this is a uh, robot game. Yeah, a robot game. Everyone likes robots. But they don't get into price war. They just don't have the software to compete on. They don't have the same budget that Nintendo does to work with because Sega is not as well financed a company as Nintendo is. And so they're in some trouble. George mentions that Nintendo of America really did feel that games were a kid thing. And really with Lincoln, he really uh, marketed it that way. That's very true, too. And that's something we'll get into more when we get into the 16 bit. Mm. But uh, Nintendo very much retrenched. They figured the market's entirely dead. We can't try to market to everybody at once again Mm -hmm. because it's dead. We have to pick the demographic that we're most certain is going to respond to what we're doing and just really drill down to that one demographic. And that was six to 12 year old boys. Yay. That's really where they focused everything on. And I think that was partially because of that need to retrench after the disaster of the crash. And of course, with their censorship, that also pushed it to be more children's like entertainment. Excessive blood and gore, nudity. And I mean, nudity doesn't just mean like topless. I mean, if the bikini didn't have enough pixels on it, (laughs) that was a problem, you know. We're talking 1960s uh, (laughs) level of quote unquote nudity. Uh, No religious iconography, you know, all of this stuff. So that also made it feel more like children's entertainment because nobody was allowed to be too edgy in their content. So, yeah, I think those are the primary reasons why you ended up with that focus. But they definitely did focus on six to 12 year old boys, specifically boys, not children generally. 
Nakayama ends up deciding to take Sega of America in a different direction. One day, a gentleman named Pat Feely shows up to speak to him at like a a trade show in Japan. Pat Feely is the president of Tonka. And we like Tonka, especially back then. Back then, they were basically still what they had been for years and years before that. They were the truck company. Tonka Trucks. That's what they did. And if you had a toy truck, it was a Tonka. Pat Feely felt that Tonka needed to expand. The toy industry was becoming more and more competitive in the early 1980s as the yuppie generation started having kids. Yuppies tended to, uh, I mean, not just yuppies, but parents in that area. You started seeing more single parents because of divorce rate going up. You started to see more families where both parents were working. But this was also a period of time when a lot of those people, these yuppies, were being pretty successful as well. So they had money. So you saw a real shift in the toy industry generally, where because parents were not spending as much time with their kids, because they're working, they show their love through buying them things. And more and more sophisticated the thing, the better the kid is entertained and then lets me sleep so that I can work tomorrow. And that led to a real change in the toy industry. It led to rapid growth in the toy industry. You know, the bigger companies started getting bigger. Consolidation was becoming a thing. And Pat Feely, who had come out of Mattel, he had been at Mattel before Tonka, really felt that Tonka couldn't survive anymore just being a truck company, a toy truck company. The CEO of the company, Stephen Shank, disagreed. He thought, okay, maybe some expansion is okay, but we shouldn't overextend. We shouldn't expand too fast. We do trucks really well. Let's do trucks. He was more conservative. This conservativeness uh, ended up being a bit of a problem when the Tonka company had the opportunity to license certain Takara, Japanese company Takara, toy robot lines that were ultimately consolidated into a little thing called Transformers. No one liked Transformers, especially after the movie. (laughs) They missed out on Transformers. But they got the consolation prize. Go-Bots. That's right. Tonka did Go-Bots. Go-Go-Bots. Yeah, that didn't (laughs) so well. Feely was able then after that to do a little of what he wanted to do. They did Go-Bots. They did Pound Puppies. They were trying to expand into toy lines. This was the period of time when you were starting to get toy lines that were supported by television shows and all of this. Masters of the Universe, G.I. Joe, Transformers, etc. He was able to do some of that stuff, but he really wanted to expand Tonka. He believed they needed to expand to be a major player. So to him, it made sense to get into the video game industry because video games were hot. Video games were taking over the toy industry. Video games. By the toy people, video games were not really considered a toy. I mean, they were a toy, but they weren't considered part of the industry. If you look through the toy trades, they start covering video games more and more in the late 80s because they have to, because they're huge. But you can see how it's kind of a a parasite that latches on and then slowly grows and grows because they're not that interested in covering video games in the toy trades at first. But then the coverage gradually expands and expands and expands because they can no longer ignore the fact that Nintendo and not just video games, but Nintendo has practically become the toy industry, (laughs) which is phenomenal. 
this was a logical place to go to try to expand. So Pat Feely goes to Nakayama in Japan, bypasses Sega of America, and says, we, Tonka, would like to take over distribution of the Master System. You are having trouble getting buy-in with retail outlets. You are having problems with Nintendo. We have those connections that you, Sega, doesn't have. Let us help you. Nakayama and Rosen, because Rosen's responsible for a lot of American stuff on a higher level, they decide, yeah, this is kind of a good idea. So they come up with a, a pretty simple arrangement where Sega will pay for all development costs. Sega's doing all the game development and all of that. Tonka will pay for advertising and marketing costs. They'll do all the marketing, and then they'll split the profits 50-50 after accounting for most of their expenses. Very simple profit-sharing arrangement that Tonka hopes will get them into the big time, get them competing with the big boys like Hasbro and Mattel, and which Sega hopes will overcome some of the challenges that they have had bringing their system into North American market. Bruce Lauer is not happy about this. He was not consulted, and he believed that Sega had already gotten into all the retail outlets, which presumably he's probably right that they pretty much had, but there is a difference between getting in and getting lots of support. So there may have been a hope that Tonka would help coax these retailers to, and distributors to take more product. <laughs> you know, and he felt they were doing already as good as they could. He felt that even though they only had a small slice of the market, they were profitable enough or whatever. So he didn't like that. Basically, they stripped all the uh, sales and marketing and product development or not product development, but product evaluation is what I mean to say. And all of that out of Sega of America. Sega of America just basically became a glorified warehousing operation to warehouse systems and games coming over from Japan. And the entire apparatus went to uh, Tonka. That was the end of Bruce Lowry's stint at the company. That's when he left to go back to Nintendo. <laughs> and then he helped Nintendo set up some of their operations in Europe. Didn't help. Nintendo started with 70% of the market at the end of like 1987. They had 70% of the market. Atari had about 15% of the market. Sega had most of the rest, and then INTV, which was still selling the Intellivision, they snuck in with about 1% or 2% of the market. When I say Atari had 15% of the market in 1987, that's not their 7800 system. That's not their state-of-the-art system. We have to remember that they are also still selling the Atari 2600. The Atari 2600 is priced cheaper, far cheaper, like $80 or $70, than any of these fancy new systems like the NES and the Master System. That's where Atari is getting a lot of its market share. If you were just looking at next-gen consoles, then Sega was also ahead, I think, of the 7800 in terms of sales. Mm -hmm. After that, it just went all downhill. Atari really starts losing market share. They're the main ones that lose market share. I don't think Sega really loses market share, but they just don't gain market share either. So it gets to the point where Nintendo has between 90 and 95% of the market by dollar volume, and Sega's left with somewhere between 5 and 10% and of the market. Which is pretty crazy. I mean, they, they never stood a chance. Not in the 8-bit era. Well, they didn't, because they were never going to get the third-party support, because all of the important third parties at that time were basically Japanese. You would need a non-Japanese partner to break ranks in order to get a third-party supporter. The Japanese companies were never going to break ranks. There were exactly two third parties on the Sega Master System. One was Parker Brothers, which had actually been purchased by Tonka. So it was basically just Tonka <laughs> releasing games as Parker Brothers, 
and they were the distributor of the system. So that's practically not a third party at all. Barely a second party. Exactly. The other was Activision. I think we talked about this in our Mediagenic episode, but Bruce Davis really wanted to make sure that whoever won, he was there. He wasn't one for deciding which platform was going to win and then bet everything on that platform. And then if that platform went down the tubes, you're in trouble. He was very much about spreading your bets. You know, they continued in the Atari market. They released games for the NES and they published a small number of games for the Master System. They were games made by other Japanese developers Mm -hmm. because they weren't going to, I mean, they had the same exclusivity clause that everyone else did. They weren't going to waste what they thought was one of their good products on the Master System. You know, they were still going to put that on the NES, which meant it had to be exclusive to the NES. But they wanted that in with Sega. They wanted Sega to consider them a friend. They took some games that were developed in Japan by other companies and they published them in the United States. So that made them like the only company that was in all three markets, like Atari, Sega and Nintendo in this time period. Those were the only two third parties. And one's not even really a third party. Exactly. Then to make matters worse, Tonka has a really bad time of it. Feely's expansion ends up being too aggressive. They decide to buy Kenner Parker, the toy company combination of Kenner and Parker Brothers. They get into a bidding war with another company. They end up having to pay a ridiculous amount. I think it was something like $500 million for Kenner Parker. It's way more than they can really afford. They take on debt. They're hamstrung in their operations. They can't promote the Master System or any of their products as effectively because they're so hamstrung. Pat Feely leaves the company. Stephen Shank, the conservative CEO, never wanted to really be in the video game business in the first place. So once Pat Feely leaves the company, there's really no one in upper management that's really championing this video game thing. So Tonka decides that they want out. They and Sega negotiate and end up ending their relationship. The Master System sells roughly 1.8 million units in the United States. That's good. The Nintendo Entertainment System sells 30 million units in the United States. We're going to revise that to bad. Right. It can't get any traction because of all of the reasons that we've already said. But of course, Sega's not stopping there. Sega decides that if they are going to have any chance of breaking through this Nintendo stranglehold, they are going to have to be the first to get a hot new technology of some kind to market. They need to one-up Nintendo. Nintendo is somewhat consent to ride out the Famicom as long as possible, both the Famicom in Japan and the uh, NES in the United States. That creates an opening for other companies to try to muscle in on what Nintendo is doing by leapfrogging them in technology. Hudson Soft is one company that decides they want to do this. They consider the Nintendo Entertainment System harder to deal with, harder to program for, harder to get maximum gameplay value out of than it really needs to be. They're a unique company because they do hardware and software. So they're a Nintendo licensee, Adventure Island series, etc. But they decide that they want to create a more user-friendly, from a programming perspective, game system that can one-up Nintendo. So they create the 
architecture for the PC engine and then partner with NEC, Nippon Electric Corporation, in order to create that system and release that system. It's still 8-bit, but it has some 16-bit graphical hardware or whatever. Sega, meanwhile, decides as early as 1986, 1986, that they are going to go 16-bit, real 16-bit. And this is a kind of bet-the-company thing that they decide to do, because it's similar to the situation that Nintendo had with Rico. I didn't tell the story, but I'll tell it now. When, when they went to Rico to do the 6502 chip that they wanted to do, they had to hit a certain price point on the chip in order to make the whole package, the whole console package, cost-effective and viable. In order to do that, they had to place an order for 3 million chips. They had no idea whether they'd be able to sell this Famicom thing to anybody. And they had to do an upfront order for 3 million chips from Rico in order to get a bulk discount big enough that they could get the price break they needed. Sega does something similar, not on as grand a scale, but does something similar with the Genesis. The Mega Drive is what they're calling it in Japan. And this is their equivalent of a 16-bit system that's going to be the thing that's going to come up against the Super Nintendo. Right. They decide that they have to go with the Motorola 68000, which is the top-notch 16-bit processor on the market. In order to get the price down to where they need it, they have to make a large upfront chip commitment. They do basically the same thing Nintendo did. They do a large upfront commitment to make sure they get the price they need. So they get the 68000 microprocessor, which is the flashiest and best 16-bit microprocessor on the market. They take the hardware from their System 16 arcade board. You know, they're already doing 16-bits architecture in the arcade. And so they use the System 16 as the base. Again, Sega being involved in system hardware, very important to their evolution, as we discussed in the previous episode. And craft a video game system, a 16-bit video game system that will run rings around what Nintendo is able to do with the Nintendo Entertainment System. Nintendo's not sitting idle. They're working on a next-generation system, too. But they're content to sit on it. We don't know much about the development of the Super Nintendo, unfortunately. R&D 2 did it again. Masayuki Uemura was in charge of it again. But even though Uemura and his cohorts have talked a lot about the development of the Famicom, they have not divulged the same level of detail on the Super Famicom. The only two things we really know for certain is they chose a rather poor processor the MOS technology uh, 65010 or whatever it is, because they were originally going to maintain backwards compatibility with the NES. The Genesis, actually, the Mega Drive in Japan and Europe, the Mega Drive actually had backwards compatibility with the Master System, but only with a special converter put on top of it. The Super Famicom was going to have compatibility built in, so they chose a MOS technology chip. But then they ended up discovering it was too expensive to do backwards compatibility, and so they dropped that, but they were stuck with the chip. So they did not use the 68000, the Motorola chip, the high-powered 16-bit chip that Sega used. Other than that, though, it had better capabilities. They made a deal with Sony for a fantastic sound chip that actually came about because a guy named Ken Kutaragi, we might hear about him again, saw a Famicom and was impressed with the future of video games and basically decided on his own to do an audio chip and then offer it to Nintendo. We'll definitely hear about Ken Kutaragi again sometime. They did a very good graphics hardware that, of course, had all the sprite scaling and rotation stuff that was very impressive that Sega's system could not do. 
So they had a system that was in most ways more impressive. It had more colors, it had better sound, it had all of these fancy graphical modes like Mode 7. But they were sitting on it. They showed it in 88, but it didn't come out. They showed it in 89, but it didn't come out. I saw in one source that part of the reason for that might have been there was a chip shortage, not the ROM chip shortage that we talked about in the past that briefly scuttled the cartridge market, but like a RAM shortage that was going on at the same time that really drove up the price of RAM. And so they were waiting. But they showed it in 88. They showed it in 89. It didn't come out until 90. By then, Sega had been on the market for two years. Again, in Japan, they couldn't do anything. They just couldn't break through in Japan. We've talked before about the kind of collective mentality in a place like Japan. Once one system, company, whatever is successful, then that's what everybody gravitates towards. You don't get a 50-50 split in Japan. <laughs> once more like 90-10. Once there's a clear winner, everyone flocks to the winner. Right. And it takes a lot, a almost Herschelian force in order to dethrone a established company. Exactly. You know, the NES still had all the best software, the early Genesis software, Mega Drive software wasn't particularly impressive. You know, they didn't have a chance there, but they were also going to be launching first in the United States with a new technology. The United States is a place that is always interested in new technological doodads, and it's a place where people are always willing to change their mind to uh, a different brand if you present it in the right way. So this was a fresh opportunity after being squashed in the 8-bit market to try to establish something worthwhile in the 16-bit market. And this, of course, leads to the great conflict, the heart of the Sega versus Nintendo console war that will be the subject of part three of this extravaganza that we have going here. So to do a brief summary of this thing so far, we had... Sega and Nintendo in Japan. Nintendo completely dominates Sega in Japan, and it is practically impossible for them to get any kind of foothold. They try to take this system over into the United States, but Nintendo got there first, and pretty much through a combination of extremely good marketing and exclusivity clauses, completely dominates the 8-bit system. So Sega has been working on this 16-bit system, and sees that, huh, Nintendo's been sitting on this technology, and we can come to market first. Great. We're out here. We're first. We're the first 16-bit system out here. We're partying. We're doing good. Then Nintendo goes, <clears throat> we would like to present Her Royal Majesty, the Super Nintendo. And Sega don't take kindly to that kind of thinking. That's right. So, part three of Sega versus Nintendo where the real fight begins next time on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com where we have linked to some of the things that we discussed in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com Alex's forthcoming books will be released through CRC Press. You can email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com and follow us on Twitter at TCW Podcast. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworlds. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward, found at joshwoodward.com 
slash song slash airplane mode used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Rolla Music, found at freemusicarchive.org, used under a Creative Commons attribution license.